Welcome to the Oakcrest podcast channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop their intellect, character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, history teacher Ginny Bold delves into how the CNO Canal was a catalyst for bringing about the United States Constitution. Um, I'm going to talk about one of my a topic that I find super interesting, especially when I discovered it a couple years ago, because I live very close to the CNO Canal. It's one of my favorite weekend walks. And then when I found out George Washington's role in building that canal and how important this was in bringing about the U.S. Constitution, it was really a fun discovery. So I hope it will be for you too. So the talk is titled How the CNO Canal Brought About the U.S. Constitution. But really, it's about how George Washington brought about the Constitution, his role in this. Because we all know George Washington is the father of our country. He's the hero of the Revolutionary War. He's our first president. Without him, we wouldn't have a country. But few people know or realize how instrumental he was in promoting the Constitutional Convention. So without him, we wouldn't have won our independence from England. We wouldn't have had his wonderful example as our first president, but we actually wouldn't have even had the constitution without his leadership. So this is a story about what led George Washington to realize that we needed the constitution, that the government under the Articles of Confederation was not sufficient for what our country needed, that we needed a revised government that gave more power to the national government, the federal government, rather than having each state be sovereign. And I learned about this topic from reading this book. It's called The Return of George Washington by Edward J. Larson. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed reading it. And it's a biography of George Washington that begins at the end of the Revolutionary War and it ends when he becomes president. So it's it's these middle years from 1783 to 1789. And you could think, what was George Washington doing between the Revolutionary War and the presidency? That's all really most people know him for. So this is a whole biography on those middle years and how important he was, the role that he played during those in-between years. So from reading this book, that's I learned that he was the leading voice to get Americans to question the Articles of Confederation and consider a new constitution, a new kind of government for our country. So my ideas for this talk come from what I learned in this book. So a little bit of background before we dive in because um, I wouldn't blame you if you're a little bit rusty on the history of this time period on the Articles of Confederation, definitely a term that you remember from high school, middle school, maybe don't quite remember the ins and outs. Um, So just just to get us all on the same page before diving into the CNO Canal, a little bit of background on the United States under the Articles of Confederation. So in 1776, the Continental Congress approved the Declaration of Independence and declared that the United States was an independent country free of Great Britain. It's when our country begins. We know that part of the story. Uh, We would still need to win the Revolutionary War in order to secure that independence. And that would take another five years from the Declaration of Independence till we actually win the Revolutionary War. And in the meantime, that same Continental Congress drafted the Articles of Confederation, actually also in 1776, a little bit after declaring independence. Because now that we're an independent country, we need a government. 
So the Articles of Confederation was the document that set out the structure of our government. It's like our constitution today. It's a document outlining our government, our national government. Basically under the Articles of Confederation, each of the 13 states was a sovereign state. They held the supreme authority. You could almost say they were independent countries, not quite, but they were much more similar to independent countries. But the Articles of Confederation joined them nationally for a few important purposes that they could not do as individuals. The national government was made up of a Congress with no executive branch. That Congress had a delegation from each of the 13 states. Each one of those states got one vote for important national decisions. And the national government had authority over matters such as war, peace, and foreign affairs. Those were the things that the 13 states couldn't do together and they wanted them to be decided as a joint national government. But almost everything else was left up to the individual states. This is a much weaker national government than what we have now under the constitution. And that was intentional at the time. We were, had just broken away from England. We were in the middle of our war of independence against a tyrannical king, a king who had, and a parliament that had abused their power in taking away the colonists' rights. So they intentionally withheld as much power as they could from the strong central government in order to secure their rights. And a power that they especially held back was the power of taxation. The War of Independence was fought because parliament was taxing us without representation. So they were very, very careful about that power to tax. So the, con the National Congress under the Articles of Confederation could ask for taxes, could set taxes, but it was up to each state legislature to collect those taxes. The national government had no enforcement to collect taxes, and this led to problems. Some, state, some states obeyed and would collect the taxes that the National Congress had established, and other states would not. So as a result, Congress was constantly in debt. They were in debt throughout the War of Independence and couldn't even supply George Washington and the Continental Army with the supplies they needed to conduct the war. They weren't able to pay the soldiers when the war was done or during the war. They weren't able to pay the debts to, that we owed to foreign countries when the war was over. So back in high school and middle school, when you learned about this, when we teach it here at Oakcrest, that's kind of the basic story because you have to simplify it when you're teaching a whole year's worth of American history is basically that, that the Articles of Confederation was not a good government because Congress wasn't able to enforce the collection of its taxes and the country was in debt. Therefore, it was decided that we needed a new form of national government. It's usually simplified down to that storyline, the focus on the debt. So they said, okay, delegates met in Philadelphia in 1787. They had a new convention and voila, Goodbye articles, hello constitution. It's kind of simplified to that storyline. James Madison is given a lot of the credit. He's considered the father of the constitution. All of that is true, but it's really only half the story. One of the leading advocates for creating our constitution, our new form of government where the national government was stronger was George Washington. And the main reason why he saw the need for a stronger national government wasn't so much taxes and the debt, but it's trade. So here's where the story of how the need for easier trade led Washington to advocate for the Constitution. 
When feast, when peace was finally concluded at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783 at the Treaty of Paris, George Washington resigned his commission and as commander in chief of the Continental Army, and he returns his commission to Congress, making a point of the military is not the ones who are gonna hold power. The military returns its power to Congress. We are a civilian government, we're a government of the people. So Washington steps down from his position as commander in chief once the war is over, he returns his commission to Congress and he is going to resume life as a private citizen on his farm at his estate at Mount Vernon in Virginia. And he plans to retire permanently from public life and to live out the rest of his days in peace, managing his estate, which he loved very much. So he returns home in 1784 and begins his work on his farm. He's one of the most beloved men in our country at the time. He's one of the most famous men at that time in his lifetime. So one of his first retirement projects was to go inspect some property that he had bought decades before west of the Appalachian Mountains. So here I have a little map that I hope you can see. Here is Virginia as we know it today, which at this time also included West Virginia. Here's Maryland and Pennsylvania. So Mount Vernon is on the Potomac River, right about here. You can see it on the map. Washington DC is right here. So his Western property holdings here, the Appalachian Mountains, and his property was right around here. This is called Cumberland, Maryland, this point where Pennsylvania and what is now West Virginia almost touch with Maryland in between. So he had three major properties in Western Pennsylvania and Western Maryland and Western Virginia in this area across the Appalachian Mountains. So he um, took a few companions and went on horseback and traveled over to inspect those properties to see how they were doing. It's his first retirement project. That land, that Western land from the Appalachian Mountains all the way to the Mississippi River belonged to the United States of America. The treaty that concluded the War of Independence between England and Britain, England gave up all of that land between the Mississippi and the Appalachian Mountains to the United States. So it was US land, but it was barely settled. It was mostly Indians inhabiting that land. A few settlers, um, but mostly uninhabited. And then the land west of the Mississippi River belonged to Spain. And the bottom of the Mississippi River, the mouth of it that opens up into the Gulf of Mexico, New Orleans, also belonged to Spain. So that's the layout of that Western land. It's United States land all the way up to the Mississippi River, but Spain is our neighbor across the river and at the mouth of the river. So that's where Washington, that's the area where Washington was headed. He's 52 years old, sets off on horseback to see his properties, to, to see if they're making a profit and to ne negotiate a few sales and renting of his land. It took him 10 days to travel to Cumberland, Maryland, right up here at the top. Um, and he had to travel by horse instead of by boat, even though he was traveling up along the Potomac River. The Potomac River basically forms the border between Virginia and Maryland, and Cumberland, Maryland is on the Potomac River. So he traveled on the Virginia side of the Potomac. Why didn't he take a boat? If it's on the Potomac River, why didn't he sail there? Well, it's because you can't. You can sail up the Potomac River. If you're coming from the Chesapeake Bay, you can sail up the Potomac River as far as Georgetown. 
what is now Washington, D.C., or Alexandria, Virginia, a little bit downriver from there. Any of you who have crossed the Key Bridge or the Chain Bridge or the American Legion Bridge, which I do every day, when you look down at the Potomac River, when you cross those bridges, you see rocks. And especially at Chain Bridge and the American Legion Bridge, the, the Potomac is very skinny there. It's very different than if you go to Mount Vernon and you're standing on Washington's back porch and looking out over this beautiful wide part of the Potomac River. So basically the Potomac, you can go up it as far as Alexandria and Georgetown, but at that point it becomes unnavigable. Too rocky, too skinny, and you go up a little bit farther from Georgetown and you hit Great Falls, where I'm sure many of you have been. So the Potomac River is unnavigable from Georgetown the rest of the way up Maryland. So that's why Washington could not go by boat. He had to go by horseback a 10 day trip just to get to Cumberland, Maryland, which he did. He crossed the Appalachian Mountains. He inspected one of his properties, wasn't going very well. He inspected another property, had squatters on it, also wasn't going so well. He couldn't even get to his third property in Western Pennsylvania because the Indians in that land um, had recently been attacking American settlers who were entering into that land. So he didn't even get a chance to go to his third property. So he's inspecting these properties and he's not excited about what he's seen. He basically realizes my properties in the West, on the Western side of the Appalachians cannot make a profit for several reasons. One of which is any of the goods farmed or produced on these properties can't get to market in the East. You can't get them over the Appalachian Mountains. You can't get them down the Potomac River. My goods that are gonna be produced in the West are stuck in the West. There's no economical, easy way to get them to the East. And there was another problem that concerned him even more in that Western voyage, is he realized the frontiersmen here barely consider themselves American. Uh, they're very disconnected from the East Coast. There's a whole mountain range geographically disconnecting them. There's no links by commerce. They barely consider themselves American. They don't feel much loyalty to the United States of America. They're very disconnected. And what's even more scary is that these frontiersmen in the West, what's the best river for them to get goods to market? It's not the Potomac River. It's not any river east of the Appalachians. It's the Mississippi River. It'd be very easy for them to get their goods down to the Mississippi River, down the Mississippi River, and then to any port accessible from the Gulf of Mexico, the Atlantic Ocean. But Spain controls the Mississippi River. If the frontiersmen use the Mississippi River, they will go through Spain. Now, Spain at that time wasn't letting the United States use the port of New Orleans. So those frontiersmen were stuck. They were citizens of the United States but they wanted to use that Mississippi River. And George Washington wrote home saying, I'm afraid we're gonna lose the West. These frontiersmen are gonna ally themselves with Spain for the sake of the economy, for the sake of their economy. It'd be so much easier for them to say, Spain, we're yours. And that means the United States is gonna lose all of that land. All of the land from the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River could become part of Spain if the people decide to go that way. We don't have enough connection to them. Now, Washington started thinking, how can we build that connection? How can we commercially, economically connect the West to the East? We need to make the Potomac River navigable. 
we need to create an easy waterway for the Western farmers and frontiersmen to transport their goods to East Coast ports, to East Coast cities, to the United States of America. For Washington, that was the Potomac River. It was a very convenient waterway. It conveniently went right by his property in Mount Vernon. That was his goal. We're gonna make the Potomac navigable to connect the West to the East. So he comes home from that trip and he begins advocating for the Potomac River project. It would make the Potomac navigable from Georgetown and Alexandria all the way up to Cumberland, Maryland, and even connect the Ohio River to the Potomac River. That was his grand project. How do you make a river navigable? You build canals. England had already been using canals at that point. It was very helpful for them. So Washington is ready to build a canal along the Potomac River to connect to these Western lands over the Appalachians and to connect to the Ohio River. So Washington wrote lots of letters to his friends, to prominent statesmen explaining that making the Potomac navigable would be, this is a quote, the cement of interest to bind all parts of the Union together by indissoluble bonds, especially that part of which lies immediately west of us. In 1785, Washington started getting people together to form the Potomac Company. But this company, the way corporations worked at that time in the country is it needed approval by the state legislatures because it was a public corporation. So Washington writes to the politicians he needs to saying, hey, can you put in a good word for my corporation in the Maryland legislature and the Virginia legislature? It's very successful. Washington's fame and his, the respect that people had for him definitely helped for people to think, okay, Washington wants this project. It's probably a good project. We're going to go for it. So the P Potomac Company is chartered, approved by Maryland and Virginia, and it begins work. Washington was elected president of the company and he begins overseeing the digging of the canal. So the canal and the locks that we see right by Chain Bridge were very likely personally overseen by George Washington in their construction back in 1785. So with this canal, goods grown and produced in the Western lands could easily come to market in the East and connect the commercial, commercial interests of East and West. It would increase the economic prosperity of the country as well as its unity and minimize the danger of the Westerners joining with Spain and leaving the United States behind for the sake of the Mississippi River. But as the canal was being built, George Washington foresaw another problem. Under the Articles of Confederation, each state as a sovereign state was able to pass its own trade regulations, levy its own taxes, and even produce its own currency. So goods that were gonna start coming down that canal would potentially have to pay double taxes in Maryland and in Virginia, even using two different types of currency. And if the canal were able to connect the Potomac all the way to the Ohio River, then you're gonna throw in a third state, then Pennsylvania. It's gonna be a third state charging taxes as the goods pass through their state, cross their state lines, three different kinds of currency, it was not going to work economically. No farmer in the West was going to pay three states worth of duties to ship their goods to the East Coast. So Washington realized there needs to be a certain level of uniformity among the states in order to make interstate commerce economically viable. So he's going to focus, he's going to start with working on Maryland and Virginia. 
So when he invites some prominent politicians to his home at Mount Vernon and has a small discussion with them and he gets them to agree on uniform trade regulations and trade rates. Both sides agree, a compact is signed. Maryland and Virginia are gonna let goods passing down the CNO Canal have similar rates so that that multi-state um, transition won't be a problem. So this works for his canal, but Washington's thinking bigger and he's thinking to the future. And he realizes it's not just the goods going down the Potomac Canal that are going between Maryland and Virginia. This is a problem for multiple states. There's multiple major riverways that pass through several states. The Delaware River was an example, touching several states, the Susquehanna River, even New York Harbor, there were already tensions of different states taxing goods of the other as they're passing through these waterways that are bordered by several states. So Washington realized for the country to grow economically, then states would have to give up the power of taxing goods being traded internally within the country. The nat national government should be given that power. It should be taken away from the states and given to a national government. So Washington started corresponding with James Madison, another prominent Virginian, encouraging him to summon delegates from all the states to a convention where they can discuss this. And Madison does that. He invites all the states to send delegates to Annapolis, Maryland in 1786 to a special convention to discuss commercial regulations between the states. Madison invited each state saying that they would meet to discuss, quote, the trade and commerce of the United States, and to consider how far a uniform system in their commercial intercourse and regulations might be necessary to their common interest and personal harmony. George Washington was not able, he didn't attend that convention in Annapolis, but he was the one who got it rolling, who got James Madison to call it, who said, we really need to discuss as a country how interstate commerce can be smoother and more uniform. In the end, only five states showed up to that convention, Virginia, and then four states who were already in this tension, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. They had already been dealing with this tension of these rivers passing through multiple states. So they showed up in Annapolis in 1786, but first of all, not enough states had come, so they couldn't really proceed. And second of all, they realized do we have this authority? Is this a matter that the National Congress can determine? Or does each state need to determine this? Under the Articles of Confederation, it wasn't quite clear that this decision of making uniform interstate trade policy could be made by the national government. The Articles of Confederation had a weakness. So what the Annapolis Convention decided is we need to meet again. We need all the states to be there and we need to revise the Articles of Confederation so that it can handle important matters like this that we need for national prosperity. So they decided to meet a year from then in May of 1787 in Philadelphia. That would be the second convention and that convention would become the Constitutional Convention. It happened, May of 1787 is when it began. Delegates from every state except Rhode Island met in Philadelphia. And this time George Washington did attend. He was elected president of the convention. He was the most respected um, man in the entire country. And everyone knew that he was favorable to a strong national government. So knowing that George Washington wasn't afraid 
of revising the government to give the national government more power convinced many people this is going to be okay. So in a large part because they trusted him, they agreed to the stronger national government that the constitution created. So from a trip out west to see his properties across the Appalachian Mountains, George Washington saw the dysfunction of interstate commerce under the Articles of Confederation and got the wheels moving to rally the Constitutional Convention in 1787. The canal that many of us walk on, bike on, cross in our daily commute to Oakrest is part of the story of creating the government of the United States of America and George Washington was the man behind it.